Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Alexander the First. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the kings and queens of Scots from Kenneth McAlpin to James the Sixth. It's been a while, Graham. It's been a while since we've recorded. Yeah. Um of course uh, you can give us a recap of where we are and you know, so that the listeners can recall. I've just got sore throat. So I can't uh, tapping your chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bad leg. <laughs> a footballer that gets pushed and then holds his eye. Um, well, a quick bit of backgroundy stuff for Alexander the First. Um, Malcolm the Third is kind of the pivotal monarch for us as a starting point. So, Malcolm the Third killed Macbeth. Yeah, ruled for about thirty odd years. Yeah. Pretty stable. Married uh, Margaret of Wessex, who brought a more sophisticated, slightly European, continental kind of court to Scotland. But in 1093, he was killed in an ambush. Obviously. And Margaret herself died of grief not long afterwards. So it left this awkward sort of power vacuum. Um, So he got one son by his first wife called Duncan Mm -hmm. and six other sons by Margaret, the oldest of whom Edward died as well. But there was also an Edmund, Ethelred, Edgar, Alexander and David. Um, But also a brother, Donald Bain. We've we've done him. We have done him. Familiar names starting to tick some bells. Yeah. Um, so, as I said, Edward died of wounds. Duncan was based in England at the time, so he wasn't there. And Ethelred seems to have been a monk. Right. So he didn't get involved. So instead, we had this sort of civil war where Donald Bain initially takes the throne, mm. was overthrown by Duncan II, who was backed by the King of England at the time, William yes. Rufus. But then Duncan was killed, so Donald Bain becomes king again in league with Edmund. Yeah. But then Edgar, backed again by William Rufus, has an army, goes up to Scotland gets rid of Donald Bain and Edmund, and then he is properly king. The problem for Edgar is he doesn't have any children when he dies. Ah, yes. Right. So we end up with another brother. Oh, this is infuriating. So Alexander I is the fifth son of Malcolm III and Margaret of Wessex. So how many episodes between have we done of his children now? There was Edgar. So we've had his brother, Donald Bain, yeah. Duncan II, yeah. and Edgar. God. And we're now on to Alexander. Wow. But if you're the fifth son, you definitely don't expect to become king. No. But... So, and if we skip the guy that was in a monastery? Um, well, I mean, he, wasn't, he never became king. Okay. He was, was one of the sons. I was just thinking, if it was like the fifth guy, and thought, well, I'm never going to become king, I'll just become a monk. When the third guy <laughs> became king, he shouldn't have taken those vows. I need to grow this hair back. Mm. Um, so he's a nephew of Donald Bain, half-brother of Duncan II, full-brother of Edgar. Okay. in terms of his relationship to the previous kings. Um, and he's born, as ever, we're not quite sure, maybe about 1078, right? sort of okay. 1080. So he's about 29 or so when he becomes king in uh, 1107. Mm. Now, we don't have any contemporary uh, descriptions or portraits of Alexander, so as ever, we're going to rely on the Heritage Playing Card Limited artist depiction. So, Ali, can you reveal what he looks like? I can. Big reveal... Let's have a look. Whoa, hello. Let's have a look at this. He is... I mean, that's a proper... A recognisable knight now. Not Mm. a sign of tartan. 
no robe, just completely covered in chainmail, um, very long Norman-style shield, Norman-style helmet, and a sword tucked away there. I mean, that's he's. We're getting towards the Middle Ages here. I mean, and I'd also say he's got a. I mean, that moustache has got a certain. How could I miss that Frenchy, uh, This is French look to a proper walrus. I'm in the Air Force in 1930 to 40 here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a beast. I mean, he, he could be a Norman knight, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Oh, I see what they've done there. But is, is that an accurate depiction or Ooh, misleading you know one? It's called Alexander I, the Fierce. Mm. Do you think that was just mistranslation? Alexander the Fierce. <laughs> 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 they just misheard it. Um, yeah, that's quite a promising epithet, isn't it? The Fierce. Mm, brilliant. Um, John of Forden, believe it or not, is the one that gives uh, him this uh, nickname. In terms of his actual name, Alexander, mm-hmm. he's probably named in honour of Pope Alexander II, who was the Pope at the time that Malcolm and Margaret were married. Yeah. Um, but he's otherwise an unprecedented name in Scotland, so he's probably the first Scottish Alexander. Another great record. Indeed. That's good, because it's, uh, it's quite a Scottish name in my opinion. Yeah, exactly, but it's, I suppose it's a relatively new, mm. new addition to the canon in many ways. Doesn't it mean protector? Because I think from my name, Alistair, it's mm. the same source, and you always see those cards and uh, uh, drinks mats and things on sale in um, her- English heritage shops that explain the meaning of your name. Um, it is a uh, Greek name, of course, and it doesn't actually tell me there. Oh, yes, it does. Defender of men. Defender of so men. Protector. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So, uh, his early years. Um, the first thing we know about him, other than the fact that he's born, although we don't actually have that recorded, um, is in 1093, when Malcolm III is killed, Donald Bain comes to Edinburgh, besieges the castle mm. where all of Malcolm and Margaret's sons are, including Alexander. So they're then sort of spirited away to the court of England, and that's where Alexander grows up and spends his sort of teenage years. So is he like his brother, where he had a very Norman upbringing and was a essentially English from his yeah I mean it's not qu- not quite as long probably as Duncan II spent at the Norman court but a bit more than the last king we did Edgar Alexander is mm. that little bit younger so perhaps a little bit more okay. impressionable at mm. a young age so we'd have thought he'd have a certain amount of a Norman uh, education after that he uh, accompanied Edgar North in 1095 and uh, witnessed charter at Durham then in 1097 he seems to have pretty much moved up to Scotland to be with Edgar and uh, witnesses a charter of his elder brother, Ethelred the monk, oh. who did a bit of monking. He's doing monking, he's just yeah. checking up on him. <laughs> exactly, nice. at uh, Abernethy. Um, and English sources say that he was a comes, or an earl, which suggests that Edgar basically gives him a certain amount of land What was that word you said? Comes, or comes. Wow. Comes. So that's quite, that hasn't caught on, has it? No, I think it does more in Scotland. <laughs> Um, but so we don't know exactly where, possibly sort of Gowrie, sort of west of Dundee. But at this point, perhaps we're getting the sense that Alexander is recognised as Edgar's heir. So maybe right. Edgar doesn't have any children, maybe he's ill or whatever. But Alexander is thus an important individual in Scotland. He's got lands, he's got an actual title, he's the next man. Okay, so because because Edgar's getting on, no kids, he's yeah. got to do something, he's looking at his brother. Exactly. And... Um, such is his significance that, in fact, in 1104, he is the only layman present at the opening of the tomb of St. Cuthbert in Durham. Is he a layman, though? Well, well he's I mean, not like, a monk. Not, okay, not That's a what it means. Yeah, yeah. All right. um, 
So yeah, and he apparently paid for a new shrine with a very generous donation. Oh, that's good of him. So Florence of Worcester gives us uh, an account of this mm-hmm. uh, important moment. The body of St Cuthbert was exhibited because of the incredulity of certain abbots. Presumably meaning that people were saying, is he really a saint and like incorrupt and all of that sort of stuff, or is he just a dead bloke in the ground? So there were sceptics at that time. I thought it had been the old head chop-off trick, if you were a sceptic. No, so they, they dug him up, mm. they had a little look. And he was found, along with the head of St. Oswald, King and Martyr, and the relics of St. Bede, by sure indication, incorrupt. What did they mean? Like, they thought they were going to find... How would they know if it was him or any other fellow, if he was Bones? Well, it was... I mean, he had a tomb. Mm. But the incorrupt bit is the important bit because it means that he still looked like he was sleeping, in effect. Oh, wow. So hundreds of years later, he's not been rotting away or anything like that. Really? It's a miracle. That is certainly odd. Alexander was there and he certainly uh, attested Mm. to the validity of this claim. Uh, Which was great for Durham, of course, because it meant that they could continue to be a major spiritual centre. Yes. This grave (laughs) opening is sponsored by the Durham Tourist Board. (laughs) Um, Earl Alexander, afterwards King of the Scots, being present, because he had been permitted to take part in so holy an affair, he gave very many marks of gold and silver, and caused a shrine be prepared, in which the holy body, clothed in new vestments, was honourably placed. Um, do you think it was the case where there was the people present mm. could only be the... You know, he was the only layperson, so everyone else there is, had a vested um, interest yeah. on it being right. Yeah. And uh, he's got something to gain here by saying, yeah, 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 perfectly great, Nick, mate. No, not a problem. Mm. And get all the uh, kudos yeah, to exactly. the new shrine. Was it sort of behind closed doors job, do you think? What, what are you implying, Ali? <laughs> that he <laughs> was a bit rotty around the edges. Okay, but well, you know. Nevertheless, from you, Alexander's perspective, it's women. Because he's shown as being a very important person. He gives a generous donation mm. to the Durham monks and thus hopes that they will come to favour him when he becomes king and he's looking to extend oh, his influence. Okay. As Got have you. his predecessors. So in 1107, Edgar dies uh, young and without any children. So, sure enough, Alexander I becomes the king. Well done, him. He's played his chips well. And he becomes king without any opposition which is the first time this has happened since 1034. That's nearly 100 years, isn't it? Yeah, so that's seven reigns. Wow. And that's the first time we've had an uncontested succession. And it's gone to a brother. And it still hasn't gone from father to son. Yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I suppose you could argue that maybe Lullock might have succeeded without, but at the same time we wondered whether Lullock had been involved in a plot to get rid of oh, Macbeth. Yeah. So, Alexander is king, and it hasn't been contested, but there is a bit of an issue, and it is a family one. Mm. Fraternal tension is in the air. But they've all had a go. Who else? The There's one more brother in the line, oh. his younger brother, David. Right. Now, Edgar, curiously, um, either in his will or he made some kind of agreement with his family, his brothers before he died, granted David, the youngest brother, the appanage of Cumbria. So, in other words, he's given him a little territory to rule. So, Alexander is king of Scots, but David gets to rule a bit of territory as well. As a separate king? Well, not exactly as a king. It's just, maybe it's like the earldom that he gave to Alexander. Maybe he wants David to have this territory as well. Okay. So it's not that David is carving out part of Scotland as such, but he has been given territory and he'll get all the money and Mm. whatnot from that. Alexander, when he actually becomes king, doesn't really fancy giving it all up to David. All that bit of Cumbria. Yeah. Yeah. 
which you can kind of understand. Mm. It's quite a rich and fertile area in the other bits of southern Scotland. Pretty as well. Very, very pretty. So David is the youngest of his brothers. Now, while Alexander goes up to Scotland during the reign of Edgar, David stayed in England and seems to become something of a protégé of the English king, Henry I. But wasn't Alexander a bit of a protégé No, because he goes up to Scotland to be at court with Edgar. He's that little bit older. David stays in England, and while he's there, he gains the favour of Henry Mm. I. So Henry I probably would have been privy to this agreement with Edgar and Alexander and David. So he was initially busy in France, but in 1113, when he comes back and David says, Oi, I want my land, Henry I is inclined to agree. Right. Yeah. So so he's actually been denied this land at this point. He has been denied yeah. this land by Alexander. Um, Henry threatens military action, or David, backed by Henry, threatens military action, and Alexander has to back down. Good move. Gives, uh, gives David his land. Mm. However, David doesn't just get all of Cumbria, and he becomes known as Prince of the Cumbrians. So right. he's quite powerful there. But he also gets Upper Tweeddale and uh, Teviotdale, or Teviotdale. So he effectively gets southern Scotland. So like oh, the Lothian right. Territory, Cumbria, that whole sort of bit, really. But also on top of that, he's now... It's a bad precedent that he's got that land by force, mm. even if he is... It's part of Scotland and, uh, and everyone knows it's part of Scotland and he's got been given this by David... He's definitely set up as a rival now, isn't he? Like a buffer between the two states. Well, exactly, which is very good for Henry I, who, of course, wants to check Scottish ambition towards places yeah. like Durham. Oh, it's bad move by our man Alexander. Here. Yeah, he's lost out there, mm. somewhat. Um, now, we don't really know what their relationship thereafter is, so some historians presented it as a kind of partnership rule. Mm. Um, others suggest that there was a really serious rift. There's no actual evidence. They don't come to blows at any point during Alexander's reign, apart from this, but maybe weren't on each other's Christmas card lists. I was going to do the Christmas card analogy, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or, I mean, their mother has sadly died, so they yes. probably didn't meet around the Christmas yeah. dinner table. But, Funny, Ethelred um, the monk could have uh, yeah, could done his, something to sort out. Yeah, he could have done a little uh, moon. Yes. <laughs> um, so, Alexander's lost about a bit there, and... He does generally have Henry I as this bit of a dominant force yeah. in his life once he becomes king. Um, when he became king in 1100, um, sorry, Henry I became king in 1100, mm. and he actually married a sister of Alexander, so one of the daughters of Malcolm III. So Henry I oh, okay. and Alexander I are actually brothers-in-law. Right. So, But he's brother-in-law with David as well? Yes. Mm. Um, now, the Peterborough Chronicle claims that when Alexander came to the throne, it was as King Henry granted him. Right. Now, Henry's in France at that point, but it's, that maybe suggests that when Henry came back, Alexander had to do some kind of homage to him. Because Edgar and Duncan II got their thrones thanks to the support of the English king. So maybe Henry I, continuing this tradition, if you want to be King of Scots... So now it's setting up a precedent that it's all yeah. under the rules of... English king. Exactly. Well, you see, Edward I had a point, <laughs> didn't he? Um, and as I said, he seems to have favoured David much more than he favoured Alexander, so he became something of a protégé to Henry, mm. uh, David. Um, and like Rufus, he wants a loyal person in the north of England to be yeah. that buffer against Scotland. And he continues. So in 1114, the following year, Henry led a large army to Wales to take on um, a rebellion from uh, Grifford ap Kinnon in Gwynedd. Mm. and uh, he sent three armies, 
one of which was commanded by Alexander I of Scotland. I was not expecting that. So Alexander has to come all the way down and over to Wales and lead one of Henry's armies for him in suppressing a Welsh rebellion. That suggests uh, an awful lot of um, of uh, loyalty to the English king. Or mm. not even loyalty, an awful lot of... Uh, He's not at all, doesn't have any independence. Yeah, seems. he's got to do what his master tells him. Wow. That, I really thought you were going to say David, then, mm. not Alexander. No. Mm. Um, so he does, he goes down there, and he actually persuades, uh, persuades uh, Griffith to come to terms. So he does play quite a, an important role. Yeah, I bet he's just desperate to get home. Play, just sign, sign yeah. there, it'll all be over, go home. He's oh, really see. annoying. Just <laughs> yeah. He's really annoying, it's really annoying, let's just wrap this up. I don't want to be here. <laughs> and um, at a similar time, Alexander is then given by Henry I in marriage, Henry's daughter, or rather his illegitimate daughter, Sibylla. Alexander is given Henry's illegitimate daughter. In marriage. So Henry I is now not only the brother-in-law of Alexander, he's also his father-in-law. Oh, that's a very tricky little... <laughs> Politics, isn't it? How do I play this one? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's interesting, though. I thought he'd be doing all this for David. Like the more David got into battle with him, the closer those bonds, and mm. to give David one of his children would have been. David actually marries somebody who's got, in effect, um, the inheritance of Northumbria, the earldom of Northumbria. Right. So David does very well. By <laughs> still yeah, does nice. very well. It's debatable. Is Henry? putting Alexander in his place when he didn't do what he should have done the year before and saying, right, we're going to make sure that you're definitely loyal, you're definitely doing what I want. So come down, sort out the Welsh, marry my daughter, and then we'll see how things are. Mm, Or maybe he's thinking, well, I did have to kind of tell him off last year. So it's like, hey, do you want to come and have a bit of a bit of fun in Wales? Shouldn't be too hard. Oh, right, I see. How about this daughter? Hmm? He's doing rather well there because he's... uh... Who managed to get that uh, loyalty and, and that bond between them with his illegitimate children. That's, um... Well, yeah, that's the interesting thing. Um, it's probably not... It sounds quite insulting, almost, that he's sort mm. of hoisting off an illegitimate daughter to give to Alexander. But actually, um, Henry I did have 24, roughly, illegitimate children. Whoa! Which was the record for the first series, and indeed, I think, probably any series or two of X Factor. Wow! Good grief! I've, just, I've got his card here. Yeah. He didn't. He wasn't a looker. Must no. be funny or something. <laughs> exactly. Let's hope so. <laughs> so he actually did use them to create marriage alliances across Europe. You said like the very, very highest princes would get a legitimate daughter. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, otherwise, it's not uncommon. Mm. And uh, William of Malmesbury noted this. And um, if we're thinking that Henry's some kind of um, lecherous. Um, libidinous figure, then William puts us straight. It's all very, very tactical and patriotic, in Mm. fact. Throughout his life, he was altogether free of lewd desire. For, as we have learned from those who know the matter well, he cast himself into the embraces of women, not for the gratification of carnal (laughs) pleasure, but to beget offspring. Nor did he assent to sexual intercourse, except when it could bring about the spreading of the royal seed. He was thus... The master of his libido, not its servant. I was going to joke and say, yes, I bet he only had sex 24 times. <laughs> yeah. um, or more, well, a few well, more yeah. legitimate ones. But that's actually what they're suggesting. 
That's what William of Malmesbury, the contemporary uh, mm. chronicler, was suggesting. Perhaps trying to carry a certain amount of favour. Uh, but did he give his sons away with equal ease? Um, they more it's creative? not quite the same sort of thing, but he does give them prominent positions. Mm. So they do get, you know, they are nobles, in effect. And yeah, probably he does make some marriage alliances. I think there might have been an element of sexism in the air in the 1100s. Oh, that's, mm. well, that's quite a strong statement to make there. I also like the very poetic way he's phrased that, the master of his libido. It's sort of like, I'm yeah. the captain that... of my soul, <laughs> I'm the master of my libido. I'm pretty sure that's an album by Prince, isn't it? <laughs> um, anyway, now, William of Malmesbury went on to claim that Alexander did not waste many sighs on Sibylla, for she was wanting, it was said, in correctness of manners and charm of person. Didn't waste many sighs. When she died, he didn't oh! sigh too much. He didn't even sigh. Yeah. He just went, what? Oh, well, right. he might have sighed, but he didn't waste many sighs. <laughs> didn't waste it. Just, huh. Oh, that's one too many. <laughs> no, that's too much, isn't it? No, it's, no, it's not worth it. Your shot. <laughs> um, actually, she played quite a prominent role in uh, Alexander's religious reforms. And when she died in 1122 on um, the island of Loch Tay, Alexander mourned her quite deeply and he planned to uh, found a priory there. In her memory. Didn't know. Well, he didn't uh, necessarily have time, as we might see later. So, that's Henry I telling him what to do and who to marry and which country to invade. But Alexander does face a little bit of an internal rebellion in Scotland. He hasn't got a chance, this chap. In uh, 1116, the Annals of Ulster relates, Ludman, son of Domnall, grandson of the King of Scotia, was killed by the men of Murray. Who's that? So this is probably... A grandson of Malcolm III by his first marriage. Oh, yeah, not um, Elizabeth, Margaret, rather. Not by Margaret, yeah. but by first one. But yeah. the son had died during Malcolm's reign, but he mm. obviously begets another one. So a grandson of Malcolm III, and thus a sort of cousiny kind of thing. To, yeah, a pretty or close nephew relation, or something. Though. Oh, a nephew, in fact. They'd be brothers, wouldn't they? Be stepbrothers. Yeah, so a step. Step-nephew? Step-nephew. Does that exist? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Does in Rex Exactly. So Alexander's step-nephew is killed by Murray. And Murray, we recall, is the rebellious territory from which oh, yeah. Macbeth and Lullock hail. Mm. So it seems like they're rebelling again. Now, in terms of um, the rebellion, it was at Invergary, and Alexander was holding court there, and he was attacked by men of the Isles, who were identified by Walter Bower as Murray and Mearns. So some have suggested that this may well have been a chap called Angus of Murray, who was the grandson of Lullock. Oh, they're all coming out of Scotland the again. So they're it? still going. They're mm. still trying to kind of get themselves back. It's incredibly tenuous, though, that one, isn't it? It's pretty... Grandson of Lullock the Simple. Well, yeah, but that's a grandson of the King of Scotland. Um, but, and of course, timing-wise, this isn't very f- long after the dispute with David. Yeah. And then when Alexander had to go down to Wales... So maybe that's kind of an opportunistic time. When Alexander's been out, he's not been around as much. He must feel so got at. Yeah. Like, Don't even want it. I'm still in, in Bruges. <laughs> he's in Wales. And, and now getting these letters about these Herberts back home. Yeah. Oh. Thankfully, though, they don't present too much of a challenge for him. He's said to have fought very hard, hence Alexander the Fierce, mm. uh, defeated them and then pursued them into Ross. Who's Ross? Hey. <laughs> So, finally, he's dealt with the rebels, he's satisfied Henry I, he's given David some land, and he can sort out stuff in Scotland and get down to what he actually wants to do. And Alexander, influenced by his mother Margaret, is a deeply pious man. Mm. 
and um, possibly influenced by his loss of territory to David and the dominance of Henry, he pursues religious reforms that also kind of promote a certain amount of Scottish independence. Easier, isn't it? So at Schoon Priory, and Schoon being where you've got the Stone of Schoon, or Stone yeah. of Destiny, where all the kings get inaugurated as king, um, he founds an Augustinian community right on site. Mm. So you've got um, this sort of very important religious order and the secular ceremony for where the kings are made. So that's maybe like a bit like Westminster Abbey. Oh, right. Mix okay. of the church and the, the church and state. state. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's a period of controversy, generally in terms of church-state relations. Um, so one problem, which we might remember from the first series of Rex Factor, was the investiture crisis. Oh, remind me. Essentially, this was whether bishops owed their homage to the Pope or the King. Whose reign was that? Um, well, so William Rufus and Henry I okay. both struggle with Anselm, who's the Archbishop oh, yes. of Canterbury. Yeah. So he's saying, look, the Pope's got to make me bishop, whereas Rufus and Henry were like, no, I'm the King, I tell you whether you're a bishop or not. Yeah. Who won? Uh, well, they sort of had to compromise a little okay. bit. Anselm kept going off into exile and saying how oh, awful yeah. William Rufus was. Yeah, yeah. So we've got that going on. We've also got a dispute between Canterbury and York. Who's best? Exactly, who's best. So Canterbury's saying, look, we're the top dogs in England. Everyone owes their obedience to us. Whereas York's saying, well, we've kind of always done our own thing. We just want to carry on doing that, really. The, I mean, I don't know what the result was on the day, but yeah. now it's Canterbury, isn't it? Now it is Canterbury. Canterbury but there's won. an odd thing where, like, York does get quite a big title. Isn't it? Yeah, Canterbury... It's almost like the agreement where they say, right, Canterbury, okay, you're boss, but everyone knows that the best gig is York. Yeah. You've got much nicer <laughs> cathedral, nicer yeah. gig generally. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, you, you have the title. Yeah. Mm. So both of these things do unfortunately have an impact on Alexander's grand plans. I can't help but think he's forced into these grand plans, though. Like, he, he, like he's opened the front door of Scotland yeah. and gone, oh, God, that's horrible, <laughs> and then shut the door and just put stained glass everywhere. Yeah. And, mm. But even his stained glass plans is going to come under a little oh, bit of dear. difficulty. So one thing he wants to do is to um, fill a vacancy at uh, St Andrews and appoint a new bishop. Mm. So the man he wants to go for is uh, Turgo, um, or Turgot, who'd been the chaplain to his mother and is now a prior at Durham. Trusted. Trusted figure, friend of the family, all very, very lovely. Yeah. The problem was that because of Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, being really grumpy that the Archbishop of York wasn't professing his obedience, yeah. he was basically stopping anybody from consecrating anybody as bishop. Right, so he was just saying, no, 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 until we get this sorted yeah. out. Exactly. Hmm. So, until Anselm died in 1109, nothing could happen. Anselm died in 1109, <laughs> so, hey, presto, Turgo gets appointed. But unfortunately, Turgo wants to submit to the supremacy of the English Archbishop of Canterbury. Instead of the Archbishop of... Um, of the Archbishop of King Alexander I of Scotland. Right. So he's saying, well, obviously, I've got, to get, um, I've got to submit to Canterbury. And Alexander's like, no, that's not the plan. The plan is that we don't submit to them anymore. Yeah. Hey, hey Scotland. He wasn't on the page. Turgo was not on the page, unfortunately, so in 1115 he resigned and went back to Durham. Agreed to disagree, okay. and Alexander sighed, wasted a few sighs, <laughs> and thought, all right, I'm going to have to pick somebody else. So it took him five years to find a new man, and he went for Ayadma. Do we uh, haven't met him? No, although he's um, um, the contemporary biographer of St. Anselm. So finally, he's got a Canterbury monk, there's no more of this dispute, Anselm's not around to stop him. Everything's great. Cool. Except that the new Archbishop of York, 
a chap called Turston, had uh, again refused to submit to Canterbury. And Pope Calixtus II had decided he agreed and that York didn't have to submit to Canterbury. I'm surprised that that was not the case anyway. I thought both of them would be submitting to Rome. Well, ultimately, but you've got to have a hierarchy okay. in place. But Calixtus goes a little bit further, and he seems to think, well, York seems to have this sort of authority, you know, it's got this regional authority, and it doesn't have to submit to uh, Canterbury. So, yeah, all of you people in Scotland, you obviously have to submit to York. That's what you do, isn't it, I think? Yes. It's Scotland north. submits to York. It's further north. That seems fine. Yeah. But Adma, of course, is a Canterbury monk, and he doesn't want to submit to York. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, um, so there's this ongoing thing, um, and then also Edmund's got a bit of a bee in his bonnet, like Anselm, about the investiture issue and who gives him his ring of office and who mm. gives him his um, his pastoral staff Ooh. to symbolic Right. Things. That's very regal, isn't it? Again, Alexander's got to deal with this external debate about what to do. Eventually they reach a compromise where Alexander um, gives him his ring but the pastoral staff is just left on the altar at St Andrew's, and the Adma picks it up himself. But Alexander refused to let Adma be consecrated by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm. And so Adma in 1121 resigns, resigns and goes back to Canterbury. Yeah, spend time with the family and all that. So in 1124, he appoints Robert, who's the prior of Schoon, and surely a much more reliable chap, yeah. to be the Archbishop instead. Would have thought that was the best answer in the first place. Didn't, didn't quite get it done, though. Oh, dear. So many problems. He didn't get it done in time. Didn't manage to get it done. There were delays, okay. apparently. And then, on the 24th of April, 1124, while not yet old, Alexander died at Stirling. Of what? Uh, we don't know. He just died suddenly. Oh, that's a shame. Disappointment, presumably. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He probably just got so fed up with all this nonsense. <laughs> he just... <laughs> and popped. A massive vein just pops. Um... They've got a quite a few nice, different uh, poetic ways of putting it in the Chronicles. The Annals of Ulster says that he died in good penitence. What, do they, what could they possibly mean by a that? A smile on his face and a song in his heart. I doubt it. <laughs> He's probably going... <laughs> uh, the Chronicle of Melrose, insert folio 13, says, Alexander entered the way of all flesh. Sounds horrible. You get a cream like, for that. Yeah. <laughs> And then the verse chronicle says, After peace flourished firmly in all of Scotland, death is said to have taken the king at Stirling. Is said to. Um, I suppose he's right, there was a lot of peace, but he just, he, I mean, he couldn't even put his stained glass up. Yeah. And as John Forden says, Now King Alexander paid the debt of nature. Oh, that's rather tasty, isn't it? Mm. I like that a lot. Good that they got to, you know, really work their chops on uh, yeah. Alexander's unfortunately early demise. Well, yeah, they thought of every possible way of letting us know how he died, apart from how he died, what caused yes. his death. Yeah, the <laughs> one thing they didn't do was... Uh... We need to think of a metaphor here. How about <laughs> kind of a massive heart attack? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, the broken heart for his love of the church. No, it was a heart attack! Yeah. Oh. So, it's 11.24, and after all of that, Alexander I has died. I'm not sure it was terribly fierce. I definitely think that was just a misunderstanding. <laughs> well, let's see when we review him if uh, if there's a little bit more to be said in his favour. Well, he's got the Welsh campaign, of course. 
Mm. He gets to lead one of Henry I's three armies. That uh, perhaps implies that, you know, he's a respected figure. He's, you know, you don't give your army just to anybody to mess around with. That's true. I hadn't considered that aspect of it. Um, so what he did, it was him and uh, the Earl of Chester leading mm. this army. Um, so they approached Panny by a coastal road, came to a Penneth Bacqui, where he sent uh, messages to Grifford, and as we said, persuaded him to make peace with Henry. Yeah. So, you know, it's a prominent role. He brings about its end. It suggests a high status, certain level of competence. I think they're very... I mean, actually, yeah, the whole... And bringing peace about, because mm. most of these chaps love a bit of argy-bargy. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he, I think he was keen to get home, but it's so massively outweighed by the negatives of that, of it. If this was before he was king, mm. this would be great, because mm. he's getting experience, he's being given yeah. the position of leading an army. But he's already king of a different country. He's not even leading his <laughs> own army. He's being told, you must go over there. And presumably he's saying, what does he, how could he tell his people at, back in Scotland, saying, got to pop out for a bit. <laughs> you know, what, where are you going? It's got a bit of admin to do. You know? it must if have Henry been the first told you to jump off a cliff, would you do it? <laughs> well, probably. Yeah. Probably, yeah. It's not good. I mean, maybe it was his own troops, actually, perhaps. So maybe Henry's army was involved Scottish uh, troops. But even uh, then, even it's like, then. how do you do the battle yeah. for the cry at the start? Yes. Well, for Henry. <laughs> for England. Yeah. Cry God for oh. England. <laughs> oh. Also, of course, the fact that he resolves it all by making peace means that he doesn't actually do any fighting in this Welsh campaign. Oh, he didn't... It wasn't like they had a fight and then he's... No, they marched down and then he sends him a letter and said, you don't want to just have a chat and... I mean, didn't they think about that in the first place? Well, I guess not. I mean, maybe that was the uh, vital insight oh. that Alexander brought to the campaign. Yeah, in that case, yeah, he does get... Should we just ask him to give you some money and then we can all yeah. head home? Have you heard of the bees and picnic scenario? <laughs> Wasps, rather. I've heard it's got some legs. Uh, so, a bit of status, but otherwise... No. Mm. What we do have, and where he does get his nickname, is from the rebellion in Murray in 1116. So he'd had the murder of his step-nephew... Mm. Um, then he's attacked himself at Invergary. Um, Walter Bauer quite nicely relates the origin story of a chap called Alexander Scrimgeour, um, nicknamed the Fencer, whose family held a sort of hereditary position of uh, the royal standard bearer mm. and uh, constable of the castle of Dundee. So Walter Bauer says, Nicknamed the Fierce. He is called the Fierce because his uncle, the Earl of Gowrie, gave him as a baptismal gift the lands of Lyff and Invergary. When he became king, he began to build a royal palace at Lyff, when, behold, certain ruffians of the Merns and Murray made an attempt to capture the king by night within the precincts of the palace. When they were trying to break down the doorposts, one of the king's chamberlains, called Alexander, cunningly led the king out through a latrine. He went aboard a galley at Invergary and made for the southern regions of Scotland, gathered together a large army, and hurried against the rebels. He jumped down the loo. Yes, I mean, unfortunately for Alexander, this is effectively his best moment of battliness, but it does involve him having to run away at one point by going down the toilet. By flushing himself down the toilet? Yeah. <laughs> that, if ever there was a metaphor for his reign, <laughs> that's... Oh, Dear, I mean, a great little story, yeah. really fun, but, oh dear. We've got a bit of Edward I-style anger described Aww. later as well. 
When they arrived at the water of Spey, his enemies were massed together in a great army on the opposite bank. And as the water was rising excessively high, the king was advised not to ford the water until it subsided. He was blazing with anger at the sight of his enemy's threatening conspiracy, and not being able to contain himself, he handed over his banner to his chamberlain, the aforesaid Alexander, to carry, and these two were the first to attempt the ford. The army followed, and the enemy was turned to flight. It's a pretty reckless move. I mean, that could have gone horribly wrong. It reminds me a little bit, though, of when, Alexander, uh, when Edward was so angry with somebody for losing one of his hawks that he chased him sword-held aloft. Oh, yeah, across the river. river. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's also just another example of him being like, oh, this is so annoying, why <laughs> yeah. can't I just do my own yeah. thing? Yeah. I bet he was thinking that when he had his heart attack. That's now officially how he died. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was thinking, oh, so annoying. I could just, <laughs> just give one chance. Oh, poor bloke. And... Um, you know, it, it does just sound like a bit of a rebel skirmish. It's not really a big battle, I don't think, either. No. They say massing. Yeah. I mean, five people can mass, can't they? How, <laughs> many, how many men to make a mass? Huh. Right in. Yeah. com. But he also did start a programme of castle building near his Ooh, southern borders. Now you're talking. Um, the only one I found as an example of, but it's a good one, is Stirling Castle. Right, that's his. So there have been some kind of, I think, probably fortifications on there, but the actual castle is said to originate from okay. Alexander the First. This changes everything. Just a good castle. Yeah. Up on the hill. Looks yeah. very impressive. Lovely. Okay, well done, Alexander. You're clawing it back. What else you got? Then we've got the negatives. Oh, dear. Right at the start, of course, um, he had to, he tried to keep that land promised to David, but Henry the First backed David up. May actually have taken an army north, but Alexander has to let let it all go. Yeah, it was such a bad move. It was such a bad, bad move. He didn't think any moves ahead there. So he lost, basically, the southern bit of Scotland. Yeah, really poor. And they were starting to call him Prince, weren't they? The other yeah, Prince of the Cumbrians. David. So he's actually just lost a hell of a lot of land. Yeah. Right, right at the start. <laughs> And we've got that dominance of Henry I as well, granting him his kingship, making him give up his territory, making him come and fight Wales, making him marry his illegitimate daughter. Mm. He's a kept man, really. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good at all. He's, he doesn't seem to have made, so far, any decision of his own. It's all been forced upon him. And the only decisions he has tried to make, he failed to deliver on. Mm-hmm. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I mean, he, d- he does defeat some rebels. Wow. And he was described as being fierce. But yeah, someone called him fierce. I reckon it was just because he was trying <laughs> to claw any reputation back. I need a name, I need something. They can't call me Donald the Unlucky or Donald the... Ni- What's his name? <laughs> Alexander. Alexander. <laughs> or Alexander the Nearly. How about fierce, sir? Mm. Again, I swear that's from the first. And he's got he's got Stirling Castle, that's pretty cool. Oh, you can't see. I just lifted an eyebrow. <laughs> um, I so we're, we're scoring him on this. Yeah. Um, uh, one for Stirling Castle. Yeah. I can't give him anything for the Welsh campaign because he didn't fight, uh, <laughs> and it wasn't his fight to fight. Yeah. Uh, rebels, you'd expect that. That's he ran across a, <laughs> of, of a stream, and, and he was cross, and he was angry. Uh, I, I, one. I can't see it as any more than one. 
I'm going to give him... I'm going to be a little bit more generous to him than that. I mean, it's obviously not going to be a high score because we don't have any real proper battling going on. Mm-hmm. But we do have Sterling Castle. I think the suggestion of competence that he's given a prominent role in the Welsh campaign, yeah, I'm going to give him a bit true. of credit for. And, you know, he, he gets cross and puts down a bit of a rebellion. That's not so bad. So I'm, I'm going to give him a three. Oh, right. Okay. You know, a point for each. Mm. Because I suspect he was probably, actually, if you'd given him an army and said, right, you deal with this lot, mm. he'd probably have got the job done, I reckon. Just never had the chance to do. Yeah. Life got in the way. So that's a four for Battleiness. Scandal. Well, he did, of course, at the start of his reign, try to keep all of David's uh, land that had been promised to him. Yeah. Otherwise, that's <laughs> right. That's that's what we got. Ah, <laughs> oh. and that's not really scandalous. It's not to be really. Honest. He it's... was just trying to not give away his own land, but yeah. then he had to and failed. Yeah, um, he was. So he was trying to. Yeah, he was trying to not give away his land, but gave away his land. Yeah. Oh, lummy. That's zero. No dings there. No. Subjectivity. Well, I'm going to try here. This is Alexander's, probably his strongest suit. So I this reckon is where it's going to happen. Halfway through his reign, when he shut that, fr- shut that front door, he thought, right, this is where I'm going to make a difference. <laughs> exactly, and that's what he does try to do. Firstly, um, something which I'm sure you'll give him a lot of credit for, he's a very pious character. Yeah. Uh, John of Forden. Brilliant, here we go. Says he was most zealous in building churches, in searching for relics of saints, in providing and arranging priestly vestments. And sacred books. Though so just reading that back again, I've just noted that he's saying providing and arranging, arranging priestly vestments. Clothes? Yeah, so that does seem to be suggesting that like he folded their clothes and put them in the drawers. <laughs> that sounds more like it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, now, in terms of his religious foundations, um, as we mentioned before, he does properly establish a priory at Schoon. Mm. Um, so this is... Uh, and he gives lands and privileges um, to Dunfermline Priory. Um, there's a place, Boar's Chase, near St Andrews and Inchcolm, an island in West Fife, containing the monastery of Walter Bower, mm. that he gives uh, a certain amount of land to as well. Oh, Graham, this is... Let's try and really up the positive stakes. Bring on the big guns, Graham. We're what still we on religion. Oh, but let's look at it from the secular okay. perspective. Yes, here we go. His strategy. His problem is that he's got a massive loss of regional influence at the start of his reign. Yeah. So Henry I is all really, really dominant, and David, his brother, has basically taken southern Scotland. Yeah. So he doesn't have any more access to Durham, which, you remember, in 1104, he'd been there oh, yeah. at St Cuthbert's. He's not got that anymore. He's mm. lost all of his influence. Mm. And what's more, southern Scotland, like Lothian and stuff, has got a lot of quite nice, rich, fertile land. Right. So it's a bit of a hit et- economically as well. Mm. What's he got then? Whiskey in Loch Ness? Exactly. Mm, not good. So he's got to find a solution to all of this, and he decides to refocus his religious patronage in the Gaelic heartland of the country. Right. Okay. Yeah. The the old school. Hardcore. The old school Scottish stuff. So he sponsors an Augustinian community, which is new and European, but that means it's got good economic links. They're good economically because they come from Europe, so that means they'll be trading with Europe more. Is that right? Yes. They've got those okay. good connections there, so it's less. Um, dependent upon links with England. Yeah, okay. Right. Whereas previously they just brought monks from Canterbury. Oh, okay. So like like when you're playing a um, Red Alert or something, the barracks yeah. we build the troops from, yeah. he's getting mercenaries, mercenary monks. 
Um, there may still have been English links, but it's got a mm. better connection to Europe than maybe he had before. Um, and he also wants an independent Scottish church with close ties to the kingship. So he's trying to create this sort of new sense of the Scottish kingship being its own sacred thing. Church rather, of Scotland. Exactly, rather than just the King of England signing the form of release to allow him to wear the throne. Yeah. The crown. So he, he, the last thing he wants is to create all this Scottishness, have Scottish-headed paper, but still need the big English stamp at the bottom of it. Exactly. So he's trying to break away. So... Hence, at Schoon, this ancient site where all the kings are inaugurated mm. um, as king at the Stone of Schoon, that's where he establishes his first priory in the Augustinian community. So, like you said, it's a bit like Westminster Abbey. You've got that important church area and the important mm. king area. It's merging the two. So yeah. That's a good start. Good that start. makes sense. He also does stuff with Iona. Who's she? So, Iona. <laughs> nah. <laughs> So Iona, of course, being uh, one of the Western Isles, and that's where Columba, way, way back in the 6th century, started up an abbey, and that, that was effectively sort of the beginnings of Scottish Christianity. Yeah. That was kind of the heartland, and particularly for the Scots, Iona is this very sacred place. Yeah, so you've got Iona, and then where's the schoon for the... And, uh, where you've now England. got the religious stuff and the secular stuff. Yeah. Um, so Columba had set up this abbey on Iona, but it had been closed down by Ma- uh, Magnus Barelegs, a Viking, in 1098. Yeah. So remember last time, Edgar had effectively accepted that Magnus had ownership of the Western Isles yeah. and the west of Scotland. Yeah. He so he cl- rule about a ship passing through it. Yeah, yeah, so Magnus basically just closes the abbey down, says, right, this is closed now, no, no yeah. need. Yeah. No need for anyone else to come in. But after he died in 1103, Magnus, Alexander seems to have made some kind of marriage alliance with the new king of the Isles, a man called Somerled. Right. And this gives him access to Iona again. So, weirdly, despite the fact that his family had been opposed to him, he has his uncle, Donald Bain, dug up and then sent to be buried at Iona. Why? Well, so we had this tradition of all the Scottish kings being buried on Iona. Yeah. It's possible that actually, although lots of them were, it's possible that the idea that they were all buried there may actually have been a bit of PR invented by Alexander at this time. Right. So he wants this cult of Iona. It's another thing that he's trying to do, this old school, old Scottish Mm. identity, separate from all the connections with England that we've had recently. Yeah. So he creates this idea and he uses the sort of transference of Donald Bain's bones as this sort of public ceremony right. to really kind of kick in the idea again. Yeah, proof. Here you go, exactly. here's another one. Um, and it's also an area that's very far away from England, so it's a, it's a bit more separate and it's able to be... Okay, even if it means digging up someone that you didn't like. Yeah, yeah. Right, interesting. And finally, the last jigsaw, uh, last piece in the puzzle of the jigsaw is St Andrews. <laughs> he wants this to be the Canterbury or the York... In effect, so that will be the major bishop in Scotland. He will be the one that crowns the King of England and gives legitimacy because you've got the church leader. King of Scotland. Uh, sorry, King of Scotland. Yeah. He will be the Bishop of St Andrews, will crown the King of Scotland, and that will be recognised by the Pope and everybody else in Europe will say, yes, this is a legitimate thing. You don't need to have any connection with England because we've got a proper major church figure crowning. Yes, okay, that's clever. So you need to get Rome on side agreeing that that this bishop of St Andrews can crown the king and then there's no need to get involved with England at all. Exactly. And it's a tradition of separation now, whereas we'd had kind of accidentally almost moved towards a tradition of the English 
Yeah, getting involved and putting getting the involved. on the train. On the train? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the train up north, I suppose, to become a Oh, yeah. Off you go. They grow up so fast. <laughs> Have you got your lunch, your sandwiches? It's a sleeper train. So, hence why he keeps having these clashes with Turgo and the Adma, because he doesn't want them to be professing their obedience to English bishops, mm. because that goes against the whole plan. Yeah. So, it's good that he's pursuing this policy, and that he's sticking to it. But does he do it? Well, if we have to acknowledge the slight drawbacks in Alexander's quite impressive and quite good you plan. Know, strategic plan, um, it doesn't all actually happen. Despite all of his efforts, Schoon Priory is the only one he actually managed to found successfully. So none of the others are actually up and running when he dies. This is really poor. And St Andrews, of course, he never actually manages to appoint anybody because of all those conflicts. Yeah. So three people he tries to submit uh, to appoint, none of them actually... Uh... I believe I've quoted him before, but as Mike Tyson famously said... Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> and yes. I think he spent a long time on the plan and then not enough time, too much time getting punched in the face, maybe. The poor Alexander feels like he got a lot of punches below the belt. Yeah, he did. He did. And maybe that's why he's got a male skirt on. Yeah. Um, the other thing in his favour, this is the, apparently his reign is the first time we have a uh, written record of a chancellor in Scotland. Oh. What's his name? Can we call him Gordon Brown? Okay. For the sake of argument, he's a yeah. Scottish Chancellor. Um, and that's it, unfortunately, for Alexander. Well, when we had that moment where you announced the big plan, I thought, right, okay, hmm. good, here we go. And it was a big plan, and it was a good plan, but unless you see it through, it counts for nothing. I mean, he does get Schoon Priory, he does get that done. One. Yeah. <laughs> he... Uh... You know, he seems to rule pretty peacefully. It does pretty seem competent rule. Say that. He puts that rebellion down easily enough. I don't want to find out how long he reigned for yet, but <laughs> it seems like it, at home it was, mm. apart from that rebellion, so yeah. even that's not clear, um, it seems quite peaceful, and all the um, chroniclers yeah. say he was peaceful. Yeah, no, no invasions or anything like that. Well, apart from the David business. Yeah. I know it's not really an invasion, but suddenly... Half, well, a bit of your territory. Yeah. Mm, I'll go for one. You've gone down. Yeah, I've gone down because I remembered about that bit. <laughs> I, th- I feel really sorry for him. Like you said it earlier, actually, he's a bit of a nearly man. Mm. And he's he has a good plan. Like he has all of that bad stuff that happens to him at the start. And it's like he really thinks, right, what do I need to do to make this work and find a new way of operating yeah. that's going to make it work? For me and his successors, you know, St. Andrews is. A yeah. big plan. It's all long term mm. as well as short term, which is good yeah. uh, for X Factor. And oh, people just keep getting in the way, and yeah, and there are all the lots of external, like the whole York Canterbury thing, the investiture crisis thing, which is what he was trying to get away from in yeah. the first place, and just oh dear, yeah. So I, I feel for him, and it's it's awkward trying to think of a score. I I, I want to give him a bit of credit because again, I do feel like he's probably pretty decent enough ruler. Well, he seems very diplomatic. I think he could have, if he'd have lived longer, I, I, I don't doubt that he would have done it. Perhaps. Mm. I mean, it was it was diplomacy that ended the Welsh campaign. Yeah. He did fail at diplomacy right at the start with his mishandling of the David affair. Mm. But um, oh, no, I mm. can't go above one. I think. I'm I'm going to give him another 
generous three, mm. I think, because I think he probably was quite a good king. And from a subjectivity perspective, it's not actually so bad. It's more, it's, I guess it's the real politic that we're That's marking down true. on. His actual kingship, if you're a yeah. Scot, it's a pretty good period, really. Yeah. Well, right. I did say two originally. I'm going up to two, you persuaded me. Hey, so he's got a whopping five <laughs> for subjectivity. Longevity. So you were saying you didn't want to uh, look ahead too much. His, uh, he rules from the 8th of January 1107 to the 24th of April 1124. Oh, that's not too shabby. No, it's not too shabby. So that's 17 and a quarter years. I'm glad I gave him that extra point then. Mm, because which, that was a peaceful time. Yeah, um, which uh, currently gives him a score of 5.98, mm, which isn't obviously not great, massively high. You know. We've had some interesting responses because we asked people to send in ideas for how we might rejig yeah. the longevity score. And actually, people like Alexander and maybe the ones you think do deserve a little bit of a higher score. Yeah. For this period, that's, that's a pretty decent pretty range. Good. It's better than six. But at the moment, it's 5.98. <laughs> yeah. Dynasty. Not the right. Here's where he's going to make his money back. Let's have a big Henry the First style, 24 kids, and pump that score up. What do you got? So the next king we will be doing will be his younger brother, David the oh. First, because oh. Alexander and Sibylla do not have any children. Oh, he, oh, he, he might as well have just given up at the first hurdle. Although, interestingly, there is a chap called, because um, he's said to have been sine liberis, i.e. without children. Mm-hmm. But the liberis bit, has a, uh, liberis bit has a strong connotation of legitimacy. Oh, so no legitimate children. Yes, and, and actually there is a man called Malcolm Mac Alexander. Oh. Now it's not clear whether Alexander might have had a prior marriage that he had to give up mm. once Henry decided that he should be marrying one of his daughters. <laughs> if that's the case, he needs to score down further. <laughs> Or maybe, you know, he has an illegitimate child, in which case he could have got a little little, yeah. little wink and a nudge for the scandal score. Well, so either way, he could have got a little bit more scandal or lost a point there. Yeah. He was even told, now you've got to get divorced and marry this lady. Yeah. Mm. So it probably balances out yeah. that he doesn't get credit or loss either. Um, so it's not clear when this happened, who it was by. But this, figure do- this guy does campaign against David um, after Alexander's death in terms of trying to be oh, king. And yeah. he has considerable resources, and for a number of years, which just suggests that he's quite a prominent figure. Yeah. So, mm. you know, maybe David does a bit of whitewashing of the history and makes him out to be a completely... Yeah, illegitimate likely. ...out-of-order person. Maybe it's history written by the winners. Yeah. But... I mean, uh, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure mm, that name out. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, I suppose for poor old Alexander, the phrase history written by the winners is uh, probably... Yeah, applies to all of his factors. I bet he was meaning to write his own history, just never got round to it. So sadly for Alexander, that is a zero for dynasty. This is the only one where he had real control over it, yeah. and he didn't. And he didn't score any points. At least the other ones we've given him something. Mm. So that's a total score for Alexander of fourteen point nine eight, which uh, is towards the lower half of the Scottish kings. He would be so disappointed with that. He really would. But maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel. Does he have that certain something, that lasting legacy, that star quality that we call... Rex Factor! I mean, do you want to try? Um, 
he tried to be quite innovative with what he was doing with the church and state and all of that kind of thing. Did the I if he is the one that creates this sort of mythology around Iona and the kings being buried there? That's something that's lasted and it's quite cool. Yeah, built Stirling Castle. That's nice. That's good. Mm. Against everything that we've just said. (laughs) The tragedy for him, he's kind of like, if you ever imagine like, oh, what would you be like as king? And obviously you'd want to be Edward the First, you'd build lots of castles, go charging around, or you'd be Charles the Second who's having fun, (laughs) or Henry the Eighth with loads of power. I feel like Alexander the First is the slap of reality. (laughs) That's so true. That's what it would actually happen. He's not bad, he's pretty good, he could maybe do a good job if people yeah. let him do but there's someone who's more powerful there's a younger guy that everybody kind of yeah. wants to be there instead every time he tries to do anything there's loads of red tape stopping him yeah feels like he was a um a very good footballer that just couldn't quite make it work as a yeah. manager or something yeah. <laughs> yeah that's so true that's a great analogy i think he's good i think he's probably a decent capable king and very reliable but it just never worked out well, for him. And he just died too young. And it he might, died young as it well. Might you know. have been very different. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he was very capable, but just, it just couldn't, it couldn't put it together, could he? Final verdict. No. It's got to be a no. Poor old Alexander the First. Yeah. It's just, that just didn't quite work. He had so many ideas. Just, if it only hadn't died, if only he hadn't mm. this, if only he hadn't that. So that's just another, yeah. that's the final... Final nail in the coffin yeah. was his own death. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Poor Alexander I does not have the Rex Factor. But if you feel sorry for him, if you think he deserves um, a bit more of an opportunity, you can get in touch with us, of course. Um, follow us on Twitter at Rex Factor Pod. Like us and get in touch on Facebook. Yeah. Email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com and go on to word, rexfactor.wordpress.com, read the blogs, and you can p- complete the poll to say whether or not he deserved it. I like the fact that we've ended a review of a king with... with, with, with uh, he even had the audacity to die. He even <laughs> yeah. died. God. That's pretty bad. So rubbish. Uh, now, if you'd like to support the podcast, that would be very, very lovely of you. You can do this by leaving a review on iTunes. Yes, that would be helpful. A nice review and subscribing. Uh, you can do a one-off donation on PayPal by going to one of our websites. And thank you very much to some people who've done this since last time we spoke. Adam Mitchell, Ruth uh, Tim or Timmy, uh, Laura Duggan and Pascal Ansel. Oh, Anselm? Ansel. Oh, hmm. okay. We have got a Michael Dunstan. Who likes us on Facebook? Oh, do we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, poor bloke. Um, and, or you can do crowdfunding. So if you click on the Be My Patron link, you can make a monthly donation to the podcast and you get different rewards depending on the rewards depending on the level of donation. So $1, you get a mention. $2, a comment on the podcast. $5, a mug, which will be coming when we host We've the had meetings already. about this, We have had we've, meetings, our yeah. graphic designer, we've been... Skyping, getting the hang of Skype, yeah. and it's all it's all in the works. They're nearly here. Ten dollars will do a blog on the subject of your choice, and fifteen dollars will do a podcast uh, episode on the subject of your choice. Anything you like, exactly. But historical, probably. <laughs> yeah. Now we have yeah. recorded um, actually a week or two ago, actually a special on William the Marshal, mm. which has been promised for a while. Or William the Marshal, Marshal. Exactly. William so, the Marshal, 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 <laughs> William the Marshal. Oh, I need to record that. Um, so, yeah, so we promised this for a while, so we've recorded it. We're waiting, um, depending on when you listen to this, it'll be completely relevant me saying this, but if you listen to this very soon after a release, uh, Podbean, thanks to all the feedback we got from everybody after the difficulties with the Waterloo special, 
Podbean are releasing a completely new system for premium podcasts. So there'll be, not sure what it would be called yet, maybe bonus episodes, but basically you can buy it and should be instantly, once you've signed into your Podbean account, you'll be able to access it instantly. No more waiting around for emails, it'll just be there. None of that. All done. Hot knife through butter, click, here's the episode. And there's no more limit on how many people can yeah. download it either, which is also a bit yeah. of a drawback. Uh, so, yeah, so there'll be that to listen to. Um, so, thank you to our new Privy Councillors since last time, a oh, number brilliant. of people. Keller Higby, Remens Marr, uh, Ariel Herlich, Alexis Shelley, Carl Morris, Joe Refford, uh, KN Form, it's a username, it probably stands for something else, Ralph Steen, Kieran Baker, Bath Barbara, Sophie Wing, and SG Traum, or Sarah. Arise, every single one of you. <laughs> yeah. I'm knighting them as Graham said the words. And we also have a correction from last uh, time I did this. Uh, Lord Only Knows. Uh, the person who is the Lord Only Knows is Jack uh, Wilkinson. He just wanted to oh, he wanted get to an actual that. name drop. <laughs> well, thank you, Jack. Username. Now, if you want to be extra generous, then you could uh, be rather generous to a very good cause uh, that uh, one of our listeners has emailed in about. Um, this is from Hannah Averill. Uh, she's emailed in, I absolutely love the podcast. I've been a fan for a very long time. As an undergrad history student, you've seen me through my GCSE finals, A-levels, and now my first year at uni. Wow. <laughs> We've been going for a long time, that haven't we? you feel old. <laughs> I'm truly grateful for the several years of sanity you've brought me with your witty humour and accessible history. As an avid fan, I've always wanted, but have never felt I have had a valid enough reason to get in ton- contact with you. However, at the moment, I'm currently fundraising for the charity AIDS Orphan that support all the children they can that have been orphaned by the disease. Over 70,000 children are orphaned each year because of AIDS and are often the forgotten victims. With a few others from my student union in London, I'm going to do the three-week trek to Everest Base Camp, higher than Kilimanjaro. Ooh. And I'm hoping to raise £2,895 for this charity. Your podcast will help me get up Everest, G-Man and Ali. Do you know what would be great? What was her name, Sarah? Hannah. <laughs> Hannah. Where's the S come from? Overall. I, okay. I don't know. So if, she doesn't. I'd really appreciate it if you could help out a little way or with a mention or share. I'll be writing an extensive blog about my trip. I'll be sure to mention you. So she's given um, uh, an address for her fundraising page. And um, so I guess we'll post that on Facebook, Twitter, yeah. and on the blog. Um, but it's mydonate.bt.com forward slash fundraisers forward slash. Hannah Averill, that's A-V-E-R-I-L-L, and then the number one. But we'll post that link, so... We'll do, we can do a Rex Factor donation. Uh, what I'd really like from... So, so blimmin' hell. Uh, <laughs> Hannah yes. would be if if she could record Rex Factor being played at Everest Base Camp. That's got to be the highest altitude Rex Factor, aside from an aeroplane, has ever been listened <laughs> to. That would be great. That would be cool, yeah. Send in your Rex Factor records, how high or low or... Distant. Oh, we've done distant. Matthew Constable wins, doesn't he? But very good cause. So um, I think she needs to sort of have raised that money, I think, by sort of mid-July. So oh, uh, cool. for the next sort of couple of months, yeah. if people got something to spare, then yeah. uh, it'd be a very worthy cause to support. Boom. So And good luck to Hannah. Good luck. Sure. Good luck. Um, now, a few more messages. Colin Howell and Michelle uh, Weisgerber on Facebook both asked why we haven't continued, um, as with the first series of Rex Factor, to say what relationship the monarchs have to Elizabeth II. This has come up, yeah. So basically it's because I wasn't 100% sure if the website I was using was definitely correct. Just to clarify, Graham doesn't use the internet for his, or his research. <laughs> yeah. I am the one website I use. <laughs> Wikipedia didn't say. No, I'm surrounded by 
books on Scottish history here, rest assured and sleep well. But um, and if you try and work it out yourself, it's so hard because the problem is you can do a like a direct route back, but then mm. you think, ah, oh, but what if there was a daughter that married a count of Anjou who had the daughter of this, and then it all ends up coming back later? Oh, closer, yeah. There are so many different routes right back that it's actually quite hard to work out yourself. And it's not as there's no record records aren't kept as well as the English ones at the time, I guess. Um, well, no, it's the same with the English. To be honest, I wasn't 100 oh, percent really? sure. Um, it may be correct. I may mm. be being doing a disservice to the site, but. For interest, I thought I'd have a look at a few of them. Mm. So Kenneth McAlpin, the first one of the Scots, mm. is the 33rd great-grandfather of Elizabeth II. Oh, we're doing Elizabeth II rather than James I? Yeah, because okay. yeah, it's all. Yeah. Um, so that is a direct route. So um, That doesn't seem very many, 33. That's quite a lot of great-grandfathers. So quite a lot of sort of 60 years. Mm. But so good. Kenneth McAlpin is a direct ancestor of the Queen, right. which is a weird thing to... Yeah to think about. Macbeth, which I'm definitely a bit sceptical about this one, but I'm sure they spent time working it out. Fourth cousin, 27 times removed. <laughs> You're right. But that's difficult just because we don't know entirely who is um, family. When I got to the 22nd one there, mm. I'd be thinking, that I've, got, I've, got, I've been barking up a wrong tree here. It's <laughs> yeah. never going to get to it. And uh, this week's monarch, Alexander I, 25th great-grand-uncle. Um, Aaron Siegel um, on Facebook um, said it was great to see Edgar the Etheling make yet another mm. appearance. Um, like Dunstan, he seems impossible to get rid of, but Edgar is way more factor, even if William I denied him the Rex. Yeah, agree. I like him. I find it interesting. I was just so surprised whenever he popped up. <laughs> and uh, on the Dunstan uh, subject, oh. uh, Leia Earl um, at LJE London on Twitter said, I tried to type fun-sucking in an email, and autocorrect changed it to Dunstan, as Ali branched out into spell-checking. Yes, well, I'm sure that's no coincidence that people at Microsoft or Apple are sure <laughs> well cleared up. Uh, so, yes, if you want to get in touch, Facebook, Twitter, email, uh, or the WordPress blog, all of those avenues are available. Um, so, next, well, the next episode you'll probably be able to listen to, hopefully, will be the special episode on William the Marshal. Marshall. Uh, probably going for a couple, just a couple of dollars. We'll get you that uh, good about two and a half hours or so of uh, big chat. Pure, unadulterated William the Marshall, 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 <laughs> William <Yes>. the Marshall. <laughs> um, but our next Scottish episode will be on King David the First. Mm. Uh, but until that time, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio.